0: None of these devices... I mean, have you ever tried to use the, the the voice assistant on your phone? I mean, half the time it doesn't recognize your voice or it doesn't process your question correctly. So I'm not going to get into, like, spending $500 on a new smart speaker if it only sits in one spot of my house and it doesn't even really work that well. Well, my gripe would be that, like, I
1: have no idea who's recording my conversation and my speech and I have no idea what kind of data Google's collecting. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. at least Jarvis... Tony Stark knows that he controls Jarvis. He built Jarvis and Jarvis is not going to share information with anyone but Tony Stark. God knows what Google's up to, right?
0: Although it didn't Jarvis end up turning into Vision in the movies, so now like yeah. now Vision wow. is like dating Scarlet Witch, so there's like theoretically Scarlet Witch could know all of Tony Stark's deepest darkest secrets.
1: Well, true, I guess. But what does Vision not know? There's our cold
0: open. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, So let's start the show. Please listen carefully. Welcome back to the Extra Buttery Podcast, our first episode of 2018. Happy New Year. We're excited to get back into the grind of uh, bringing salty, snackable episodes to you over the course of this uh, this coming year, talking about everything from movies to television, maybe even some video games, anything else that kind of gets swept up along the way. But for this episode, being the first one for the new year, we want to take a look back at the year that was and kind of go over some of the highlights and the lowlights of the movies that we saw uh, over the past year, and then look a little bit a little bit into the future for uh, 2018, especially the coming Oscar race. The nominations will be coming out pretty soon, so we'll be diving into that once we get uh, through our little retrospective. But coming to you from Toronto, my name is Robert Snow, and joining me from Vancouver is my co-host Jason Chan. How's it going? Not bad, you? Just not
1: just not bad. Yeah, it's a Monday. How how great can a Monday be? <laughs>
0: I don't know. I was I spent a lot of the weekend playing uh Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild, so uh I'm oh, my well, brain. Oh, lucky is... you. Yeah. but um, it's
1: Monday. It ended. You can't play anymore. It must be sad.
0: Yeah, a little bit. I mean, it I yeah, I'm so, so I'm so obsessed with the game now. I'm thinking of because I was playing it on my brother's uh, Nintendo Switch console. Um, so now I'm sort of thinking I need to get one of my own.
1: Those things have been selling like hotcakes. I thought they would do well, but it's like it surprised me how well it's done. But this again goes to show that your console is only good, as good as your library.
0: Yes, and the there's actually not a lot of games out for the Switch right now.
1: Yeah, but isn't that supposed to change soon?
0: I mean, I guess they they ever so often they'll do like a, an announcement video where they'll talk about titles that are coming up, but it's not like they're there's this giant selection like there is for PlayStation or Xbox. No, but at the same time, both of those consoles have some, like, really,
1: truly awful games.
0: Uh, Yeah, I mean, you can make the argument that, like, uh, for those consoles, the developers kind of, uh, uh, <laughs> they kind of just shovel stuff out in an effort to uh, make a quick look.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
0: but, uh, yeah, for, let's talk about uh, 2017 in, in the movies. Um, yes, let's do that. So, it's a, it's a pretty big topic. I mean, I think I, I think over the course of the, the year, I watched a uh, little over 60 movies in theaters which is uh holy cow um which I- isn't even a lot by like the standards of most pro critics but uh um, yeah but they they get those for free exactly we don't we gotta pay for these. yeah i've been thinking of uh of actually asking my tax person whether i can uh, claim it as a uh a business expense uh i'll get back to you on that <laughs> i
1: think i think if your website makes money you can but we don't have any ads.
0: No, true. Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. Yeah, come on now, sponsors. We're uh, we're all ears.
1: Uh, <laughs> no, screw it. Screw sponsors. We're gonna do this for free for the people.
0: <laughs> <laughs> how uh, how liberal of you. Before we go, before we go into like the summer, um, there was a few like really really strong things that came out in February, March, April of 2017. Um, I'm seeing here like the big sick from uh, Kumail Nanjiani and uh, Emily Gordon this very touching sort of romantic comedy drama talking about how telling the real life story of uh, a comedian uh, Kumail Nanjiani and how he met his future wife, but then got sort of drawn into this very scary medical uh, situation that uh, uh, she ran into this mysterious disease that left her basically in a coma. And his decision to sort of waited out and wait by her bedside while she was in the hospital even though he barely knew her and uh, her parents were more than a little suspicious of him so he he kind of dramatized this whole thing and uh, stars as himself in the movie and it's probably i i i mean just because there's there was a lot of really really good things that came out last year i can't put it super high on my like top 20 of the list uh, or top 20 list for 2017 but it's it's definitely got a place there i don't know if i can do a top 20 list for 2017 there's been a lot of good movies
1: but i'd have to pare it down yeah i'd have to pare it down to like make yeah it it's pretty 10, tough so it's easier because there are a lot of movies in probably that 18, 19, 20, 21, 22 range that could flip-flop at any time. Oh, yeah, yeah.
0: And that's that's sort of where the big sick is for me. Like, I really enjoyed it, but it's, it's kind of jostling for position with a lot of movies in that uh, lower end of the top 20.
1: Right. So another film that's kind of in the lower end of the top 20 for me was Logan. Oh, yeah, yeah. This was the James Mangold film who did 310 to Yuma. And it's Hugh Jackman's last turn as the iconic Wolverine for Marvel. It's not part of the um, MCU. It was actually a joint venture because Fox holds the rights to X-Men. But I always thought this was probably the Wolverine a lot of comic book fans were hoping for. This was the R-rated, hyper slashy, you know, bloody, gory Wolverine that a lot of comic book people have been clamoring for. I thought it was really. Really great film. It was very different from all your traditional superhero films. I thought Daphne Keene was incredible as the girl and really the the crux of the story, where she's like this orphaned mutant who is experimented on, and she pleads and begs Logan and Professor X to help her escape to the North, mm-hmm. incidentally where all the people go when there's some sort of like apocalypse or like life threatening danger.
0: Woo Canada. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's like Canada or North Dakota or something, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, but I think they, they they there was a few like kind of vague references to the border, and I wasn't sure if that if they meant the state border or the national border. But uh, um, right, hey, I mean, if if uh, we're seen as a haven for oppressed mutants, then I guess that's pretty cool. Or just oppressed people nowadays, eh?
1: <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, zing. Um, no, I just thought uh, going back to this film, it was incredibly well shot. It was a long sort of. Plotting drama at some points, but
0: yes, it was it was long in points, yes. but uh, but yeah, it I think it borrowed a little bit of that from the Western genre. That it, that yeah, 310 to Yuma, yeah, it
1: had a very 310 to Yuma feel. Because if you remember 310 to Yuma, um, Russell Crowe was kind of like this anti hero, <laughs> yeah, and Christian Bale was like the hero, but he had some he had made decisions in the past that kind of haunt him. So he was kind of a, trying to redeem himself. And it's kind of the same story here with Logan and Wolverine, who's like the last surviving X-Men.
0: Yeah, yeah. But
1: I really thoroughly enjoyed it. I kind of at the beginning of the year thought this would be a awards frontrunner. But now that we've had like the run-up late in the year with all the award-bait films, this is getting pushed down. But it's definitely
0: still in my top 20. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think uh, Logan is a great example of what I think is is one of my my favorite approaches for superhero movies is to bind it to a pre-existing genre or subgenre, something that's not superhero. So in the case of right. Logan, it's a Western. In the case of, like, even though I liked it far less than Logan, uh, something like uh, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, borrows a lot from the kind of political thriller yep. subgenre. Um and it it's still not it's still not done very often, but I think when it when when they can make those references or those connections really overt, it really raises up the material a lot. And it uh, uh, for me, it just makes it a lot more interesting than uh, I don't know one of these typical installments that kind of presupposes that the superhero stakes and the save the world stuff is paramount and uh, you should really really care about you know the latest cackling villain who wants to blow up the planet yeah exactly we have to talk a little bit about get out because that's that's definitely making its way onto uh pat like out out of the top 20 and into the top 10 for a lot of people you know there's even a, uh some talk that the the star daniel kaluuya if i think if that's how you pronounce his name yeah he was in black mirror eh yeah he was in an episode of black mirror um uh was it 20 million credits or or something yes, yeah it was, a, it was like Oh, oh 15 million, oh, 15 million like credits yeah um yeah, a pretty a deeply disturbing episode yeah a pretty disturbing one it can be a bit of a deal breaker for some uh, some viewers but no i think what what he showed in in that black mirror episode and certainly in get out is that he is a he's a person to watch and Jordan Peele will—I'd be surprised if he doesn't get some sort of uh, nod for best director for this, even though it's his directorial debut. Essentially, I don't know the—it's coming out in a year. It's—it's it's riding a lot of political advantage. You know, there's there's a lot of discussion about racial politics uh, in the news, and you know, it came out a, at a at a very good time for it to kind of grab a lot of the the conversation. So, and, and, you know, and all of that aside, it's just a really satisfying movie. The only
1: thing, the the one thing that kind of works against Get Out is that it's not a genre that's typically loved by critics or critic awards. It's a horror, black comedy, thriller, like, it's kind of genre bending. And in the past, other than, I'd say, uh, The Exorcist, like, other than, like, couple of instances like that horror and comedy films don't get much love at the awards unless they're in their own category
0: it's one of those movies that uh wins over the critics but can't win over a voting body
1: yeah essentially because the voting body is like old and farts yeah. old farts <laughs> and
0: despite all all their many attempts to uh add new people to the ranks
1: well i mean it's getting better but we'll see how much it improves things
0: yeah yeah, yeah. another uh standout from that kind of uh, that kind of block in the March to April section of of 2017. Um, uh, I don't think you you got a chance to see this yet. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it a ghost story uh, from uh, David Lowry.
1: Right. Yes, I really wanted to see this, but I couldn't get tickets. Yeah, it's
0: actually on Netflix Canada right now. Um, oh, if you want to nice. catch up with it, even though it does star Casey Affleck, which you know can rub some people the wrong way right out of the gate. You know, they may they yeah. may just refuse to see it on on those grounds alone.
1: He's an excellent actor, all sexual accusations and being a scumbag aside. He's a, he's a really good actor.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, he, he certainly got the goods in that department. But And, and uh, I don't know if it makes things better, but I mean, he does spend the vast majority of the movie hidden under a white sheet. So, <laughs> but in case you, in case the uh, you're listening to this and you, you have no idea what I'm talking about, it's a it's a really tiny movie that uh, David Lowry, who directed uh, "Ain't Them Body Saints," and he was actually hired to do the the Disney uh, remake of Pete's Dragon. This past year, he kind of he wanted to do something like a passion project, something that he could just kind of go out and do quickly with a small crew. And he came up with this idea of a ghost story, which is just about an unnamed man and woman who move into a new house together. And the man not long afterwards is killed in a freak car accident. And he comes back as this very uh, uh, traditional like uh, Halloween style sheeted ghost. And he's haunting the house that, uh, that he and his wife were going to move into. And as he watches in this kind of silent observation sort of mode, uh, he sees like new people come into his wife's life. He sees her move out. He sees new people move into the house. Um, he eventually sees the house torn down and uh, big, tall, modernist skyscrapers put up in its place. And he's kind of stuck in this position. And it, if you're in the right headspace when you see the movie, it can be really powerful, really profound. But at the same time, there are certain odd moments in it that may actually just make you laugh out loud because you're really not sure how to process it. It's, a, it's unlike anything else I saw this year. So, I mean, I think it, it deserves a shout out for okay. that reason. Fair enough. I've always wanted to see it. The one movie I also want to touch on, this strangely got
1: a January release, but it was Kong Skull Island. A January
0: release? I thought that was like, uh, I thought it was like April or May.
1: Oh, sorry. February release. It was February. Oh, February February 28th. Yeah. Okay. So I know a lot of people like was kind of lukewarm about this film and I didn't go in with much expectations, but much like Pacific Rim, I went into the film to see King Kong bust some skulls. And I saw King Kong bust some skulls. That he did. So in that sense, I thought it delivered, and it was not. It's not in my top twenty, but I just wanted to point out that it's a very, I think, entertaining film. Like if it's on TV, I could just stop and watch it.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think I would agree with that. I mean, uh, again, it kind of it did sort of come from nowhere. The um, the director uh, uh, Jordan Vote Roberts, uh, he sort of. <laughs> Came out of the gate. I think his his only previous credit before this was a little indie flick. So for him to be handed this massive budget uh, studio film, you know, part of the broader Godzilla universe that um, Legendary Pictures is trying to put together, you know, that's that that was a pretty big responsibility for a guy who's just sort of starting out. But you know, they handed him this big cast, and he, uh, you know, he he really, uh, you know, it's as he said, it's it's definitely not going to win any awards but it's it's entertaining for what it is and i loved john c Riley's uh performance in it
1: yes john c Riley was excellent didn't the director get in some trouble because he was tweeting out at some haters
0: uh no he was angry about the cinema sins take on his video or on his movie right anyway the guy was a little sensitive (laughs) he was yeah i mean he (laughs) he kind of what he he started up by he went on this big long tirade and um you know, he didn't quite seem to get the joke of the whole CinemaSins YouTube channel, and his tweets then kind of set off a bit of a firestorm about how, you know, a certain section of film Twitter also hates CinemaSins and feels that they're like a blight on film criticism. Um, so, yeah. you know, it that, that did dominate the discussion for a little while, and then uh, we all promptly forgot about it. <laughs> yeah
1: uh march 11th baby driver baby driver yes
0: i know i know i really like this one you were a little bit more lukewarm on it though
1: yeah it's a fine movie i just didn't love it as much as you did though
0: yeah i mean i'm a i'm an edgar wright uh fanboy for sure i uh something about the way he he puts those pictures together you know just purely on an editing basis
1: yes his editing is very interesting I'll, i will give him that
0: yeah and it was baby driver was just more of the same like you know he He's taking a genre that, admittedly, you know, some people could say has been done to death. You know, it's the heist genre. It's mm-hmm. got a young protagonist who's trying to get clear of his uh, crime affiliations. It's got a lot of charismatic uh, career criminals in it. I thought Lily James really stole the show in this one, too. Yeah, I'd agree with that, too, actually. She, I mean, she's been doing a lot of smaller parts in, like, British costume dramas and stuff, but... Uh,
1: yeah, she's that type.
0: Yeah, but they, but she came out here and, you know, she showed that that uh she can uh, she can at least do a southern accent so we know that uh, she can play more characters like that <laughs> um it's just like she
1: took this like pretty cliched role of like the diner girl yeah and I think really made it interesting I thought she was a very uh compelling character because she kind of uh she, she kind of she's kind of like the driving force behind Ansel elgort's uh character yeah. yeah. And, yeah, and she, her name itself, like, the the meaning behind having her uh, in the story is, is quite pervasive. She's a big reason why he does the things he does.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I bought their relationship, which, uh, which is, you can't always say about movies like this. And, you know, Edgar Wright has talked about maybe doing a sequel, which would be... Uh, How do you feel about that? My preference would be just to leave it as is and just keep it keep it as that singular film. You know, and I don't think... Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think Edgar Wright has ever done a direct sequel to any of his movies so far. So that would be that would no. be kind of new territory for him. But he does have shared universes. Yeah, I mean the whole uh, Three Flavors Cornetto trilogy is, of course, a, sh- a shared universe in the sense that like they're all lampooning particular movie genres. But um, I don't know. I mean, I think there would be a lot of potential pitfalls in a sequel to this because the this initial story is very well contained and. He would have to come up with a pretty compelling reason why Baby got back into the whole uh, heist-wheelman kind of get game after, you know, spoilers. But he is locked up at the end of Baby Driver. It's not like he gets away scot-free. He spends a stretch of time, like a number of years, in prison for, uh, for his activities. And then he meets up with Lily James' character when he gets out. So... To kind of make a whole nother movie where he obviously hasn't learned his lesson or, you know, you know back to square one. It might it might feel a little bit forced. Yeah. My two gripes are that
1: the part where people are praising about the music and how it's cut to um the action on the screen. I feel like he's not. He's definitely not the first one to do it. I think no. he did a great job. I think that's just part of the film's charm. I wouldn't give him bonus marks for that. The other thing is with Edgar, right? This film in particular was a little too kinetic for me. Just personally, I wish it had more quiet moments. For those who haven't seen the movie, Ansel Elgort lives with this uh, old man who's mute, and they have yeah, sort of like his foster father. Yeah, his foster father, and they kind of have a few nice quiet moments together. And I wish we had more of those because uh, that end sequence, the fight, final fight sequence with John Hamm. Really made me just want to walk out and be like, "Okay, can we just skip the next five minutes, please?"
0: Yeah, in the sense that you, like you sort of knew that John Ham's character was gonna meet a grisly end, and you were already kind of thinking ahead.
1: Yeah, it just went on too long. It didn't have to be like that.
0: It's like in Jason
1: Bourne, where like the spy, his like the spy that's trying to kill Jason Bourne should have been dead like five scenes ago, but somehow continues.
0: <laughs> yeah. You, you, Wait, which Jason th- Bourne are you talking about? Um. Was
1: it in between the second and third one? Like Joan Allen's character, Pamela Landy? No, 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 no. Uh Carl Urban. It took him a long time to die. Didn't oh, it? uh
0: yeah, sort of.
1: There's like a car he got shot, there's a car chase.
0: Yeah, that that even go-
1: Jason Bourne himself, like if you read the books, it's ridiculous. In the film it's a little better, but he gets shot at, he gets like vicious car accidents. He should have had like whiplash like fifty times.
0: Well, yeah, but you know, that's don't don't bust up the uh <laughs> the, don't burst our bubble too badly now
1: no 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 i'm not it's baby driver is a good film just not quite uh i didn't quite like it as much as you did yeah fair enough the same thing with guardians of the galaxy but vice versa i think i liked it more than most people although i have to concede the first one was better
0: yeah i'd agree with that
1: the second one was more of the first and just a tad longer and i think it wasn't as original and fun as the first one, which is, I mean, kind of hard to do because it was the first movie. Yeah,
0: it would be, it, it was a very hard movie to follow. I'll, I'll give it that. And yes, you know how, you know, how in the first one where they they kind of poked fun at Lee Pace's villain character Ronan and kind of especially yes. in the in the very end sequence they they said they you know he he's about to start his whole i'm going to destroy everything and bring my wrath and and then they just cut him off and do a dance off scene i mean yep. incidentally that's one of my yep. favorite scenes from the entire movie but it's almost like they they kind of went back on that idea in volume 2 because they, yeah, it took itself too seriously. They, yeah, I mean, they, they brought in a villain who, again, you know, is going to destroy everything with his evil blue goo that's taking over entire planets. And you know, the uh, as charis- as charismatic as Kurt Russell was in the role, he still didn't inspire a whole lot of fear. Y- yeah, it um, it definitely I can't call it worse than than the uh, than the first one. It's just m- kind of more of the same. Like it just doesn't it doesn't hit as many high notes. And because it's a sequel, by virtue of being the same, it's worse, right? It's, it's complicated in that way. But yeah, it's, um, you know, s- slightly fewer memorable scenes, you know, that kind of thing. Um, about the, one thing I will say, though, that I, I did like about it, that not, not everyone kind of pointed out, was how the movie decided to split up the characters essentially into pairs and play them off of each other, so that you had, like, mm-hmm. uh, Star-Lord playing off of his father and you had Gamora playing off of Nebula, Rocket playing off of uh, Yondu, and you kind of—they were kind of teasing out interesting character relationships with pairings that you wouldn't—you may not totally expect. Uh, from a writing perspective, it was kind of interesting. What's next? Uh, Wonder Woman came up before that. Oh yeah, did we skip Didn't Wonder it? Woman? Oh my god! Yeah, we skipped Wonder Woman. Oh no, they're all well. They all sort of came out around the same time. Like it was a it was a pretty hot um, spring okay. and summer. Um, well, let's let's do Wonder Woman because we because there's gonna
1: be more like near closer to the end of the year. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Wonder Woman. I mean, I I thoroughly enjoyed Wonder Woman. It was it was kind of invigorating to see a DC movie that was actually legitimately working and you know hitting hitting a lot of those kind of emotional moments that you want from this universe but at the same time as a piece of filmmaking maybe it's not going to stand the test of time especially if we get more movies like Wonder Woman and by that I mean more movies directed by women and with uh, female superheroes as the lead characters which is something we arguably need to see a whole lot more of. Wonder Woman being the first one. So yeah, it's a uh, I
1: thought it was a good film. I thought it was much better the second time I watched it, but at the end of the day it's a very
0: well-done origin story and that's all it is. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's not uh I can't really call it award-worthy, especially not No, especially I, uh, no. not in comparison with with a lot of the other stuff that it's it's up against this year, but yeah, I mean, it's compared to the the narrative Uh, chaos of the other movies that uh uh, in the same series like uh, batman v superman and even justice league to an extent this had a strong beginning middle and end and it had a couple of pretty rousing moments especially the fight scenes in around uh, no man's land and uh, the battlefields
1: yeah the the no man's land scene i thought was fantastic the plot could have been a little tighter but I'm not gonna give it negative points for that because I think the focus was always more on the characters themselves.
0: And like Steve, and like Chris Pine was legitimately uh, fun as Steve Trevor. Like I wasn't sure what kind of material they would give him to work with uh, from the outset. Right? right. His chemistry with Gal Gadot was was really strong. The villain was left a little bit to to be desired. You know, it would have been nice to get. That was the other thing I was gonna bring up too. David Thewlis, what a waste. I mean it. Uh, I almost would have preferred it if he didn't transform into this big Greek god thing with like armor and yeah. superpowers at the mm-hmm. end. Like if he just stayed in his human form, it almost would have been creepier like that. Because yeah, it ended up in a in a kind of a classic kind of big explodey showdown thing. And I'll, you know that being said, when she charges up her bracelets and like blasts him with a lightning bolt, that was a pretty good pretty good sequence. Yeah
1: speaking of movie that had pretty some pretty good sequences was also another superhero Spider-Man Homecoming which really surprised me how good it was.
0: Oh uh, now you're you're going really fast now. We had <laughs> <laughs> It's June. It's no, we got we got to uh, Okay, so real quick um, because we're, we're skipping over a few of my favorites. We don't have to go in order. Um, Atomic Blonde was great. I liked it a lot. Um, that was an August release, man. Well, okay, my list is to, is more out of whack than I thought it was then. Um <laughs> King Arthur, Legend of the Sword.
1: Oh yeah, you saw that. Would you really recommend this yeah. though?
0: <laughs> no, 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 no. Definitely not. This this list is not about recommendations. In case you were curious. Um, okay, it, all right. <laughs> I Arthur, we were kind of skipping over the ones that we didn't like. I mean, yes, except except when we didn't like them enough to the point that they people need to be warned against them. Uh, because, <laughs> <Like> the mummy. <laughs> yeah, and like uh, you know, because I know you fell asleep during the mummy, um, <laughs> yeah. but. Yeah. Uh, King Arthur Legend of the Sword was like... It really wanted to be like a superhero movie set in the time of King Arthur and the round table. It even imagined, like, what what would it look like if Excalibur turned King Arthur into the Flash and, like, gave him super speed. But it was just... It was phenomenally silly. And... <laughs> it, it. But silly good or silly bad? I mean, if you were drunk, you could probably get a laugh out of it like (laughs) you know drunk drunk or maybe a little bit high or something you know you you could probably get a little bit of fun out of it um it definitely it definitely wouldn't depress you but it is yeah it is really really silly and then sitting right next to it on my list is something that you probably wouldn't enjoy no matter how intoxicated you were um and that's the circle with emma watson and tom hanks Uh.
1: um
0: they, they came out around about the same time, but The Circle was just dreadful. It it was <laughs> needlessly alarmist about our tech future. Um, it, it feels like the kind of movie that we'll look back on in maybe even as soon as like two years from now and see it as being like hopelessly out of date. It was still a pretty big summer for Emma Watson, though, because she had Beauty and the Beast
1: early in the year. Yeah. Yeah. And that
0: made a lot of money, right? Did you um, see Beauty and the Beast? No,
1: no. Oh, but I
0: okay. I hear I hear it was excellent or at least it's not. as good. What, no?
1: No, it's not. Oh. It's almost a shot-by-shot remake of the cartoon. Oh, okay. Um, except I thought the cartoon characters had more charm. The production value is very high. Like, I, I can't deny that, like with any Disney movie. But next to each other, I'd 100% prefer the cartoon. Okay. Okay. Even
0: the songs were the same. Well, yeah, but wasn't that the intention? Like, they just wanted a live-action version of the cartoon that everyone loved?
1: Well, just freaking go see a stage play. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, no,
1: for that reason, I, like, you know me, like, I, I really prize originality in films. So, anytime there's, like, a shot-for-shot remake, I'm automatically not impressed. Because, I, yeah, I feel like you're just not putting enough thought into this. You're not really trying to make it your own film.
0: Well, well you guess on that score then then she she might have had a big year financially Emma Watson that is um uh, but uh well Charlie Hunnam was supposed to have a big year too I mean he was good in Lost City of Z Right
1: right but I think that played more to his like actual personality maybe Maybe yeah
0: but also like nobody saw it like it barely had any kind of release Yeah why is that I really don't know I th- I don't know if it was It should have had a bigger release because I think it had a really compelling story I mean it it if it had I think the studio is a little bit stuck because they they probably knew that it wasn't strong enough to compete in like a awards kind of environment um, because it is even though it is right. really strong it's not it's not maybe flashy or um, it doesn't have enough of a of a hot button issue to. Uh, to kind of distinguish it, even though it is like the execution of it is really, really good. They, uh, yeah, it just it, it, it would have a hard time standing out in that company. And then so they ended up releasing it sort of midway through the year, round about the time when like everyone's more, more distracted with big studio, uh, blockbuster type fare. So it's, uh, it kind of got lost. All right, what's up next? Alien Covenant. Alien Covenant was disappointing because
1: it had run its course. By the time that franchise came out, there was really no need for another film. What made it even worse that was that even though Ridley Scott has spent so much time and thought and care into like creating this alien world, like the story itself was so spectacularly boring. Yeah,
0: yeah, I'll agree with that. I mean it's and this is coming from somebody I've never seen Aliens one through three. I don't don't ask me how that happened. I know you're I know you're still horrified. Um <laughs> uh, but <laughs> Yeah,
1: you, if you could only see my face right now, my jaw is, like, <laughs> on the floor. My eyes are
0: rolling out of my head. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still, like, an alien newbie. Uh, have, I had now, I saw Prometheus, and I, you know, I was told that for people who enjoyed Prometheus, Covenant would be satisfying to watch because it, it continued all of that, uh, all of that those those strands. But yeah in that sense a little bit but you know it wasn't it redeeming enough but for me like i mean i just i can't get into the the kind of mindless slasher stuff that the alien movies always devolve into i mean maybe maybe scott did it really well in the first one and maybe james cameron kind of did the perfect follow-up in the second one but for my money like the current Alien movies are just a lot of really, really detailed production design, like very, very impressive sci-fi worlds with, like, these great approaching shots as the spaceship comes in and, you know, the landscapes and the, the crazy destroyed um, civilizations and stuff. Like, all of that is is really fun to look at. And it gets killed also because its characters are so dumb. Yeah, I mean, it, like, you know, you... The, there's there's a difference between like yelling at the screen and wishing the characters were smarter and just being kind of disappointed that they that they just made such an easy uh, prey for, yeah. for the uh, the monsters. Like you know, I mean, the, you don't you don't want to feel so much smarter than the characters that it kind of defeats the purpose to see the movie. Or you're like half um, screaming in and, your head, uh,
1: "Don't go to that place or don't do that."
0: Yeah. Like, you know... it's, like,
1: blatantly obvious what's going to happen.
0: Yeah, like, you've got characters in this movie who, you know, especially when they when they all take refuge in that engineer city, and this, this is where a, pretty much most of the, the killing happens, but, you know, they've already survived a disaster where their shuttle blew up and they had a couple of their crew be brutally murdered in front of them. But then they just kind of go about their business inside this building, even though they know that there's, like, a maybe murderous android who's their only like uh, contact and the aliens that were killing their friends before are still out there, but yet they're kind of, you know, having fun washing their face in a sink or poking around in evil looking eggs. And it just, you know, Billy Crudup dies. Um, I forget the the one who gets decapitated in the sink scene, but
1: yeah, it just goes on and on and on. (laughs) Yeah. A total missed opportunity. But the franchise is in flux now because Disney just bought the rights to everything, right?
0: True. Although Scott has, you know, he says that he wants to make sequels out of everything now. So He's going to direct till he's dead. Yeah. He's like... Which I appreciate. I love the guy. I
1: I think he's still one of the best working in in the industry today. And his films are still interesting, even when they're not great.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, there's very few guys working who have that level. Like It's like basically him and Clint Eastwood who keep up that kind of pace. Yeah. Uh, a couple more shout outs from the summer. Spider-Man Homecoming for sure. That was a July release. I enjoyed this one a lot. It's 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 a lot of fun to to see Marvel kind of operating at what might be like the best of their output and that was that was true like twice this year between uh, Spider-Man Homecoming and uh, Thor: Ragnarok. I did find Homecoming a little long. Yeah. But I thought Tom Holland was a
1: great Spider-Man and I think they had a very interesting way of integrating him into the universe but also making sure that he had his own story yeah yeah um if you watch like the promos i think you and i were both like man is iron man gonna be like a major character in this but he really he's not i mean he's there in certain key points but he's it's really spider man's story which i really appreciated and i also appreciated that they really mixed things up that they took the comic book lore and kind of threw some of it out the window and kind of made their own twist on it yeah Definitely. Well, I think uh, the other thing too is that they had really moments of levity, especially with is it Jose Lobaton, like his friend. Oh, the uh, the
0: yeah, his best friend yeah. character. Um, What's his name? Shit.
1: Anyway, I thought the
0: the supporting cast was great. I thought Michael Keaton was a good villain as well. Oh yeah, and they like kind of I and I think I made this a fixture of my my review on the site was. It's it's hard to hard to adequately describe how satisfying it is to get a villain like the one that Mike, Michael Keaton plays in this—a guy who doesn't have any grand ambitions about taking over the world, about destroying a bunch of stuff. You know, he's just a kind of a very much a blue collar, uh, down to earth kind of guy who has very simple things that he wants. He just wants to provide for his family in a uncertain time, I guess. And, and the reveal too, right?
1: Yeah, with, and they, with the you know, with
0: the twist near the end of the movie, That was awesome. I yeah. didn't expect that at all. You know, and and yeah, there's the, something that that they might have spoiled a lot earlier if they had been less careful, but uh, but yeah, it, it hits at just the right point. It it was very strong on all those levels. Um and it seems like Tom Holland is going to be one of the one of the guys who's going to help kind of carry this whole massive behemoth that is the Marvel Cinematic Universe into its next phase, so that's um, a that's pretty cool to see a, a young guy like him <laughs> get that kind of uh, that kind of responsibility um
1: there was another summer blockbuster that I wanted to talk about and that was war for the planet of the Apes. oh yes yeah so I have to say that I don't remember much of the first one the first one was surprisingly good because I don't think a lot of people had expected much from it partly because people are still kind of like, a little unsure after the Mark Wahlberg remake with Tim Burton directing, mm-hmm. but even though I think it's the worst film, the weakest film of the trilogy, I thought War of the Planet of the Apes was ultimately still very enjoyable. I thought Andy Serkis was incredible as get, again as Caesar. Yes, I think Woody Harrelson was fantastic as a villain. There's certain things I didn't like in regards to the plot and how. I think it kind of meanders for a little bit, but the cinematography was great and the CGI is great. And I thought the storytelling, which is like the strength of this franchise,
0: especially in the second movie, it was still on point. Yes. And it like, you know, it finally kind of acknowledged the fact that, The characters that we've always liked the most in this series have been the ape characters, and the humans that have kind of been in the on the periphery of Caesar's story have never been quite as interesting as Caesar himself. And a lot of yes, Caesar's incredible. What an incredible character! And a lot of the credit there goes to Circus. Like you know, I mean, he and you know, it's important too to describe you know what Circus is doing. I think a lot of people still use the the. the terminology that was coined back when circus kind of came to our attention as Gollum in Lord of the Rings, you know, at the time Mm -hmm. they were doing what was called motion capture. So they were just capturing Circus's like physical movements as the character and then doing the voice and the performance later. But now it's all done at the same time. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, circus is an actor like any of the others that you would see on any other movie set. And everything he's doing is being all of the technology is there to help him deliver the, the, the performance as one complete unit and i think that really comes across in these movies you know it's uh, caesar does not feel like uh, an assembly of technological stuff like so mm-hmm. many other fully cgi characters that we see in movies nowadays you know he you believe that he is a character and uh, that's that's very hard to pull off yes 100% agree. What else came up around that summer? It was a it was a busy summer for me. Um, Dunkirk, obviously, like Dunkirk. You know, um, okay, here's my question about Dunkirk. Now that you've seen like pretty much
1: all the Oscar frontrunners, where does Dunkirk rank for you? Is it top five, top ten, top fifteen? Oh, that's a good one. That is that is a really t- difficult question because I I I have this same problem because I don't know where to rank it exactly. Technically, it's Well done. It's like Christopher Nolan at his like most proficient. I think his story structure was very unique. I don't think we've seen a lot of films that have that three simultaneous storyline that kind of really meshes seamlessly. I think the performances were good even though it was an ensemble cast and it was like everyone was low key.
0: Everyone's low key. I mean, he does so much without any dialogue, you know, he, um, uh, w- or even without any, without a lot of like really brutal violence, you know I mean? A lot of people going into a world war two movie, you know, probably conditioned in part by saving private Ryan and other movies in the genre. Um, they, they might expect a movie like Dunkirk to have lots of like people getting their heads exploded or like being riddled with bullets. But, uh, this kind of, Cuts around all of that and is more about the kind of broader national experience of like what it's like to have your the majority of your fighting force stranded and basically doomed. Right. Uh, At the same
1: time, though, if you're talking in terms of story, I thought Dunkirk was maybe the weakest. But is it good enough technically to be considered one of the best pictures of the year?
0: I don't know because there's, um, you know, movies like which we'll get into in a bit. The stuff like The Shape of Water, right? Exactly. Blade Runner twenty forty nine, or even stuff something like Mother from Darren Aronofsky. Like there's there's a lot of movies that were that were that had so much going on on a technical front that it might be easy for Dunkirk to kind of fall behind again. And we're even seeing that in some of the precursor awards, like other movies are stepping up in the technical categories that you might expect Dunkirk to perform really well in.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And in terms of, uh, well, we'll probably get into it later, but in terms of
1: flipping the story structure, the traditional story structure on its head, I thought Wind River was arguably more explicit and original and he, I think, uh, Taylor Sheridan took a lot more risk in that screenplay, and he pulled it off, which I think, in some ways, is more impressive than what Christopher Nolan has done.
0: Mm, yeah, and Wind Wind River is something that I I still have to see. It's it's, it's oh, like okay. um, it's probably one of like five movies from this past year that I really really want to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a flawed movie. I wouldn't say it's perfect. I think it falls
1: short of awards caliber film, but. There are some interesting, interesting things in it.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting that you would say that it, it outperforms Dunkirk in that very key area. So it might be yet another year uh, where Christopher Nolan delivers like a uh, a really affecting movie that still doesn't get any love on a, on an awards level.
1: I honestly, yeah, I honestly don't think Dunkirk's gonna win any major awards. Yeah yeah it's gonna get nominated for quite a few but it's not gonna win any Mm, it might get even shut out it feels like one of those years and it feels like one of those years where a chris nolan really just misses out on everything again yeah i don't Uh, know what it
0: is but uh just tough competition yeah i mean it's uh it's it's just one of those one of those bad bad luck kind of situations i mean uh yeah, despite how much I liked it, um, you're talking about Atomic Blonde. Yeah, well, we uh, Atomic Blonde is uh, came out around the same time. Um, again, like it's I was I would kind of put it more in the category of something like Kong Skull Island, like we were saying before, like a movie that, on a critical basis, you know, it, it definitely has a lot of strengths, but it's it doesn't really deliver a complete package. Um, but what it is strong at it does incredibly well. And again, if the fact that like, we're seeing a movie like atomic blonde that has such a, a, brutal driving female lead in a genre that's been dominated by, by male leads for pretty much the whole time. Um, like this character that Charlize Theron plays, uh, Lorraine Broughton, like she is just a bone crushing, uh, terrifying <laughs> figure for the entire movie. And, the creative team behind uh, John Wick is partially involved in this, and you can see all of the technical stuff being brought to bear on it, like these these just insane uh, tracking shots, these long takes. There's this uh, fight sequence in a staircase that just will blow your eyes out of your brain. It's so good. Um, and, like, uh, Charlize Theron was so committed to the role that she actually broke a tooth because she was, not because she got, like, hit in the face, but because she was gritting her teeth so hard. She's badass, though. With exertion while she was doing the fight, you know, and it uh, Atomic Blonde is, is like, one of those movies that you can, you can just rewatch very, very easily and maybe even pick up partway through and just, and just enjoy it. This was supposed to be a big summer
1: for Sofia Butella too. Between that and The Mummy,
0: yeah, and I, well, I mean, I think she does a lot better in Atomic Blonde. I mean, it seemed like yeah, of course. I don't know. There was
1: nothing good about the Mummy. We should just not talk about it.
0: Oh, uh, here's here's a little uh, a lesser seen one that um, deserves a little bit more attention. I don't know if this this will pay out for it in the uh, the awards race. Good Time from the Safety Brothers. I didn't see that. Um, it's it's got Robert Pattinson in it. It's a sort of a, one of those crime movies where everything takes place all in one night. And Robert Pattinson plays this kind of dopey, desperate career criminal who ropes his brother, who suffers from a intellectual disability, into a bank robbery. And in their attempt to get away, even though it seems like they had, you know, everything well planned out, uh, they still managed to catch Pattinson's uh, brother and cart him off to Rikers Prison in New York. And then Pattinson's character has to spend the rest of the movie trying to put together the cash to bail him out because he knows that um, his brother's intellectual dis- disability will mean that he's just going to be completely uh, destroyed in prison. And um, it just—it's just one of these movies where you know you're almost out of breath when you're finished watching it. It's just going at this mad pace, but you really, really hate robert pattinson's character by the end of it even though you're supposed to like him but yet you it, it's this it's this very tangible uh, love hate kind of thing and uh mostly because you almost all the people that he runs into over the course of the evening are so much worse than him you know they're they're just like the absolute like underbelly of society the the safty brothers who have been making movies for a long time and are surprisingly well connected in the whole uh, indie film circuit um, you know, they, they've they've been interviewed by the Criterion Collection. They pop up a lot uh, in that kind of circle. But this is really the first movie that, that's come out that could be considered, like, close to a mainstream type of uh, breakthrough. So I'm, I'm very curious to see what they do next. I, uh, and I totally recommend Good Time uh, to anybody who can find it. Logan Lucky. Logan Lucky, yeah. Um, this was, yeah, this is just, just before TIFF started. New movie by Steven Soderbergh, who's been... Uh, allegedly in retirement for a lot from motion pictures at least for the number of years now uh, while he was working on the Cinemax show The Nick. But yeah, he comes back to to feature films, and he brought what's well, uh, again. It's sort of almost like twenty seventeen was a uh, a heist film type of year. You know, we had Logan Lucky, we had Good Time, we had uh, Baby Driver, Fast and
1: Furious, uh,
0: Fast and the Furious. There was <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot of uh, a lot of enterprising criminals on the screens this year. I just like Logan Lucky because it it's set in the American
1: South. It's has to do with NASCAR, which is really not exactly a topic that Hollywood has dabbled in. I think the only time I've I can the only other NASCAR movie I can remember is probably Days of Thunder with Tom Cruise. Right. And so I thought Channing Tatum, I think, is an underrated actor. I think he does a really good job here. Adam Driver's fantastic. Daniel Craig does a character that's kind of like wacky and weird and he pulls it off. And Riley Keough, I, I've always really liked and she does a really good job as well.
0: Yeah, it's a it's one of those movies where like the The director is able to get exactly the cast that he wants, and he gets a lot of great performances out of them. You know, he's just at the operating at the top of his, uh, top of his powers. Um, so, even though, yeah, well, I remember us talking about this uh, on the show, of, you know, back around the, the time Logan Lucky came out, and I think it, you know, I think both of us felt that it was a little bit long in the latter. 20 minutes or so, you know, is kind of dragging things out a little bit. You know, if you like Steven Soderbergh, if you like any of the actors involved, this one is definitely worth seeking out. Uh, not the least of which because it really, it kind of underperformed at the box office compared to what I think Soderbergh even himself was hoping for. You know, I think he was he was kind of he had given a really interesting interview before Logan Lucky came out, essentially saying that if his financing model and the way he the way he he was able to arrange creative control for Logan Lucky, if it worked out, it could totally turn indie film financing on its head. Um, but unfortunately, it seemed like Logan Lucky kind of underperformed. So maybe he wasn't he wasn't one hundred percent right on that.
1: Yeah, uh, which is kind of unfortunate. So if you could go and see Logan Lucky, or just I don't know, go see yeah. it sometime. Support the film; it's pretty good.
0: So now now we find ourselves into uh, Tiff Zone. Um, and also, did you ever see goodbye Christopher Robin? No, no. Uh It felt like more of like a prestige kids movie for me. I mean, obviously, you know, well-made, but that's what I felt too. But, and you were, you were at the Vancouver film festival around about the same time. But, um, you know, there were so many, so many great things from this year's festival. It was probably one of my favorite festivals, uh, in recent memory Mm -hmm. Uh, stuff like Lady Bird. Obviously that one's a a huge one in the current conversation, you know, leading up to the Oscars, the shape of water again, excellent Uh, three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Also very, very strong mother, very weird. Really, really not for everybody, uh, but definitely unlike anything else you'll ever see. Uh, So those, those three movies for me were the ones that or those four movies rather were the ones that were kind of, top of mind. Did you get a chance to catch up? Well, you saw Lady Bird. I remember we talked about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I was actually going to point out two films at VIF that I thought were excellent that really like are like seared into my head because they made such an impression on me. One was this Thai film called Bad Genius. Oh,
0: I remember yeah, you talking about that. Yeah, Yeah,
1: and this is a kind of like an Edgar Wright kind of flashy kinetic film about a group of kids who are trying to take entrance exams to get into the best colleges in the world and they all team up and hatch up with this plan to cheat off each other and so they can get accepted in all these prestige schools and one girl's like the ringleader and she's making money hand over fist and she's like got this like moral dilemma in front of her and it's a very um, straightforward film but it's very well done, very well shot. There's a couple twists in there that that, that it can, kind of come out of nowhere and that's great. Uh, the humor is there as well. The cast of characters, they all do a knockout job. Um, I wish more people have seen this, and I wish more people have seen, like, see foreign films from Asia, because a lot of them are quite good. Because mm-hmm. most people, if you ask them about, like, Asian films, they think, like, John Woo, or, yeah. like, Jackie Chan. Yeah. And there's, a there's like, a bigger world than that. Or, oh, yeah. God forbid, The Great Wall. My God.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Hollywood's idea of what, uh, of what uh, Asian film can be.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. The other one that I hope at least... Gets a few more nominations down the road is The Florida Project. Oh, yeah, from Sean Baker. With Sean Baker, uh, Willem Dafoe plays this motel manager that's housing some low-income people, one of which is a very young mother with a precocious daughter with her that she kind of drags along everywhere. And it's a very slice-of-life movie that is not unlike Moonlight in the sense that it's set in Florida... And it's a coming-of-age story, and it's about people who are on the fringe of a society. I really, really loved it. I thought it was hilarious. When I walked out, the reaction was a little mixed because it can be crude. We are talking about low-income people, so like, there's lots of crude jokes, crude language. Um, the lifestyle may not be appetizing, and there are certain scenes that may be disturbing. But overall, I thought it was an incredible film.
0: Yeah, that's uh, like I mentioned before. I have a list of like basically five movies that from the year that I'm still kind of burning to see, and that's that's definitely one of them. This, this past, like, I would say past four months, they've just been crammed with, with great things. Um, mm-hmm. you know, moving out of the festival, the festival titles, you know, we had stuff like Blade Runner 2049, which both of us really, really liked. Um, yeah. And we've, we, you know, we've, we've got in depth on that. Oh,
1: also there's one more film I forgot to mention from VIF that I saw. Oh, really? The Killing of a Sacred
0: Deer. Oh yes. Yeah. That, that was a weird one because it was kind of, it was opening in festivals all across the calendar. It didn't have one kind of big, big opening, but yeah, I, I saw it after and it was, uh, uh, I totally agree with you. It's a strange film, but it's super
1: effective. It made you feel things that you didn't weren't sure you could feel because it's part drama, part black comedy, part horror. And Barry Keegan gives one of like the most creepy performances ever. And Colin Farrell's like this deadpan character um, that kind of is supposed to be humorous, but at the same time also dim-witted and uh, like a really despicable person because he thinks so highly of himself and so lowly of others.
0: Yeah, and he has these weird um, like... Sort of a sexual deviancy, deviancy with a, with regard to, like, his... Uh, um, with Nicole Kidman, yes. Well, yeah, and then the fact that, like, he he seems to get a bit of a, a thrill out of uh, anesthetized people. Um, right. You know, and, yeah, it's, yeah. The, the movie is packed with all kinds of really disturbing details. You know, some of them are only referenced once or twice. Other ones kind of weave their way throughout the movie. Yeah, it's a, it's got a weird plot, and it's
1: based on, like, the Greek... Um, mythology about how this father has to sacrifice his kid in order to have a certain God's blessing for a war that's coming.
0: Yes, yeah, the whole uh, Agamemnon uh, preparing to go to Troy, yeah.
1: Yeah, so it it, it took me a while to kind of draw that connection, but once it's there, you, you really realize
0: what he's trying to go for. Right, yeah. Did you see Coco? I did. Also very, very strong. I mean, Pixar is, um, you know, after after maybe a couple of less than uh, successful entries. Inside Out was fantastic. No, I, I'm thinking of, like, uh, Finding Dory and Cars 3. Oh. Um, that's
1: because they're yeah. sequels. Yeah, so Coco comes out <laughs> and,
0: you know, it's, uh, I would say, like, maybe in the first 45 minutes or so, I wasn't entirely sure right. where I where I was going to land on it. Right. Um, but I don't know, they, it was this kind of the sum total of the, the way the music or the idea of music itself is, is woven so carefully through the entire movie. And it's, it's so, uh, linked to the, the emotional value of the Mm -hmm. movie, um, when they're building up to like the final denouement, essentially you're like, it, it hits you hard and you're just like, uh, it's like the opening of up almost, almost not quite that, that, uh, hard hitting, but it's, it's kind of in that, in that territory, in terms of how it how it hits the uh, or pulls the heartstrings so uh mm-hmm. yeah i highly recommend that thor ragnarok is also around that same time again we've we've talked about it in, in earlier episodes so we won't go super into detail but uh again uh super satisfying marvel
1: because it was similar to homecoming in the sense that it didn't really take itself too seriously
0: yes this is the trick right i mean uh you know newsflash to dc it's not it's not enough to just crack jokes the jokes have have to feel organic and of of a piece with the larger film and or at least in tone with the rest of the movie cuz Justice League was two-faced Yeah totally it it really you could really feel how they were grafting the humor in Allegedly, after the fact, if the reports from the reshoots were, were to be believed, uh, but in Thor: Ragnarok, you know, it felt like like a single. It was a Taika Waititi experience. Yes, and it, you know, if uh, especially if, if anybody has seen the uh, the behind the scenes reel that Marvel published uh, in step with the release of the Blu ray, I mean, to see what Taika Waititi like fooling around on set and dancing constantly and just creating this this really fun atmosphere for the actors and the crew, I mean that goes a long way to understanding how a movie like thor ragnarok can end up being so satisfying to the audience because it's just it's just so cohesive you know they came at it with a singular approach and they were just like how can we take these weirdly disparate characters like uh an incredible hulk stuck on a distant planet and uh a thor who in past movies has been a bit of a hothead and not that fun to watch um how can we kind of blend this all together into a really fun weird experience and uh yeah thor ragnarok was that yeah by the way
1: i know she doesn't qualify because it's like not a performance the the academy Awards ever look for but i really loved kate blanchett's performance as
0: hella oh yeah yeah me too she was awesome it's such a vamping uh like over the top, but yet yeah, somehow successful. Like so many other actors would have kind of tanked that. I think. Yeah, but it's Kate Blanchett, uh, so she yeah. can do whatever she wants.
1: <laughs> you know what wasn't amazing, which kind of disappointed me, was Murder on the Orient Express. Yeah,
0: yeah, I was. Um, it was a very generic. Yeah, kind of lukewarm film. on that one. And speaking as like a fan of the Poirot mysteries with David say the like the TV show on uh, uh, from uh, the British TV show. Um, you know, I, I had a little bit more invested in it as well. Um, but, I mean, and now it's, of course, it's, it's emerged since that movie came out. The, the, the new one came out, but they're very clearly making a play for a, a Hercule Poirot cinematic universe. Uh, so they want to, you know, there's, there's some hints dropped in the final scene where they essentially say yep. that the next Agatha Christie one that they're going to be doing will be Death on the Nile. Well, we can look forward to more Kenneth Branagh with his ridiculous mustache. Um, Lady Bird? Lady Bird, yeah. Oh, yeah. Again, uh, one of my favorites from from (laughs) TIFF. uh, Still kind of... Top five this year? Ooh, it's up there.
1: You don't think it's... uh, It's not like like a clear-cut
0: favorite film of 2017 for you? I mean, it's up there with like... I, I hate doing the final rankings, but Lady Bird, Shape of Water, Blade Runner 2049... Uh, those are all kind of jostling for position. Mm-hmm. By the way, what's with this backlash
1: against Lady Bird?
0: Uh, what what kind of backlash? What are you hearing?
1: I don't. I I keep hearing about backlash against Lady Bird, but I don't know. Like how like somehow Greta Gerwig didn't really direct or write the whole thing. Oh, I didn't hear any of that. Oh, cause it, it is some crazy rumor about how like it felt really like a Noah Bombach film, and he how he had
0: a lot of help behind the scenes. Well, I mean, like you know, she she's dating the guy, isn't she? I mean, they're they're in a they're partners. Right, and, right, right. Uh, you know, but that's the backlash.
1: I mean, like at when it first came out, it was like everyone kind of had this at the top of the list. Like it broke Rotten Tomatoes records. Everyone's like, "Wow, this is gonna be a frontrunner for awards." Now I'm getting it. Feeling that people are kind of scaling back on their comments, uh, um, yeah. I mean, it's a good film. I, I think Sersha Ronan and Laurie Metcalf are going to get nominated. I don't know if they're going to win, but they they definitely carry this film, and it's it's very good. It's very well done.
0: Yeah, and the, the whole mother daughter relationship is so strong in it. I mean, it's it's hard to find a similar movies that that go that in depth with with that particular kind of relationship between a a teenager growing up in that time period and that place. well there have always been attempts but there have been attempts but like something that's specific to like growing up in sacramento in the 2000s um with those songs on the radio and that specific like income bracket and all of the the great observational details about like you know throwaway lines like um laurie Metcalf saying oh we're gonna have a small christmas this year because we can't really afford like Better gifts or, um, you know, their favorite activity on Sundays is to go uh, touring open houses at uh, fancy uh, homes that are for sale and like, you know, living vicariously through the the wealth that they don't themselves have. there's actually a there's a great breakdown on the blog One Perfect Shot, which does uh, call outs on Twitter about like great examples of cinematography. Uh, one of their writers did a side- by side comparison of all of Greta Gerwig's most notable movies so far, including uh, Frances Ha, where she kind of broke out. Uh, that was a Noah bombach film. Uh, a second Noah bombach film where uh, she was sort of like she was a writer and kind of a co-star, uh, Mistress America, which I really liked. Um, and then, of course, Lady Bird. And there's a, I, I think I shared it on Twitter. It, uh, it's a its a very detailed kind of look at how Greta Gerwig started out as a, primarily an actress and then started taking on more of a writing uh, side of things and has now moved away from the camera entirely and is just writing and directing. And it's a great kind of progression of a career that's kind of only getting started. Mm-hmm. Three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. Super great. If you like Martin McDonough... There's a backlash for that, too, by the way. Ba- welcome to 2018. There's a backlash against everything. is right? I mean, <laughs> it so hard to just enjoy things nowadays. We have to, like, second-guess ourselves and, you know. Um, yes. Uh, so, yeah, ignore the backlash. Three, board, three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri is... Not only is it very satisfying for fans of Martin McDonough, you know, people who liked In Bruges and Seven Psychopaths, You know, it it hits a lot of those same kind of black comedy notes, but the, the film programmer who actually came out to talk about the movie before the screening at TIFF this year that I went to said that one of the crucial ideas to understand about Three Billboards is the element of compassion that's in it and how... The characters wrestle with how much compassion that they can really give other characters, given the kind of kind of wretched situation that they all find themselves in, with this um, this rape and murder that's happened in this small town, and the uh, the sheriff's department's inability to solve it or their unwillingness to solve it. But yet, the you know the characters actually show weird forms of compassion towards each other as much as they can. And they actually forgive each other in ways that we haven't really seen in a Martin McDonough film. So it's, it's very interesting on all those levels. Did you ever see Wonder? No, it's... It felt... It's
1: not, not, not really my it like thing. It felt like
0: an awards grubbing type of thing. Or just kind of a 2 I've trigger. heard good things, though, eh? I mean, it, I'm sure it's... Darkest Hour. Darkest Hour. Haven't seen it yet. Uh, that's on that, that top five list I mentioned. I well, I do want to talk about this film with you.
1: Call Me By Your Name. Okay. Have you seen it? I have seen it. Okay. I would say between this and The Florida Project, these are two of my top five. A lot of people had kind of compared Call Me By Your Name to Moonlight from last year. But to me, The Florida Project is a closer comparison.
0: Yeah, and in terms of, like, physical location and all that?
1: Well, that and just, like, the way it's shot, the story it tells. Call Me By Your Name reminds me a lot of Brokeback Mountain. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, Although I... I do think Brokeback Mountain is a far superior film. Huh. Call Me By Your Name is completely, to me, dependent on Timothy Timothée. I don't know. I've never heard it said out loud. <laughs> Timothée Chalamet's, Chalamet's performance, which I think was a lot better than I thought. That last scene where he gets the final c- phone call from Army Hammer's character and he's looking in the fireplace and the credits are rolling and there's just music in the background. Yeah you could see every emotion across his face that was a wonderful piece of acting the thing about call me by your name was that unlike brokeback mountain i never felt and unlike moonlight i never felt pulled in by their story i think with moonlight there was always that intrigue about like is he or isn't he with brokeback mountain there's really undertones of like homophobia and they and uh like a forbidden love with "Call Me by Your Name," it was very sensual, but at the same time, I think it was more about first love than being attracted to your own gender.
0: Yeah, I, I sort of see what you're getting at. I mean, I think I think
1: "Call Me by Your Name" is more of a coming of age story. A
0: little bit, yeah. I think also part part of what's key to 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 enjoying "Call Me by Your Name" is the how interwoven it is, how how interwoven it is with the all of the classical influences that are kind of surrounding the characters. So, like... Right. It's very romantic. They're living in this uh, kind of estate home in Italy. They're surrounded by classical music. They're All the characters are knowledgeable about classical music, about uh, classical authors. The arts. Um, about the... They had the arts. They had the, the archaeology of the place around
1: them. The yeah. history. They get homemade pasta. They get juice from their own backyard with the apricot trees. Yeah, it's um,
0: it's almost as though like the world doesn't exist outside of the little town where they're hanging out for the yeah.
1: Summer. It, actually, that's a good way of put, put, putting it because I, I feel like that's where it kind of lost me. Okay, that it was very um, encased in its own world, whereas Moonlight and Brokeback Mountain to me um
0: were about people struggling to find their place in society Mm. yeah so yeah there's sort of mirror films in that way you know like the you know call me by your name is is less interested in the world at large you know it's 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 all about the the senses and the the what those evoke in the characters um but one thing i I did like about Call, call me by your name is it didn't really seek to put labels on uh any of the things that the characters were experiencing. Like No, you no. know you can you can certainly see that, you know, the relationship between Timothy Chalamet's character and Army Hammy's character is a you know, it's a it's a gay relationship, but he seems to to derive just as much uh pleasure from a relationship with a local girl from the village.
1: Yeah. Well even his uh at the end of the scene there's a monologue from his dad who's played by Michael Michael Stolberg Stolbarg. Yep. who Who's like a really underrated actor who's really good. He's in a lot of things that you'll be like, oh, that's him. Yeah. Um, he has this monologue and he really sums up the film really nicely because up to that point, it really took a while to get going, I think. Everything that happened in front of it was a little slow moving. Like you knew what was going to happen, but you just didn't quite know when. Mm, yeah. And you see Timothy Chalamet like go through all these ups and downs. The part where um, where he's playing with the peach – I I thought that was very uh both hilarious and, and kind of heartwarming and touching and and sensual at the same time, but that also like was like what an hour an hour and a half into the movie.
0: Yeah, so I mean, can I can I really put it in my top five of the year? Maybe not. I know some people certainly have. You know it. Yeah, I don't know. It's not my favorite,
1: but it's up there somewhere.
0: Yeah, I would put it in like. Maybe, maybe the top ten for me maybe it's like the sixth or seven sixth or seventh place uh, just purely based on like tech like it's its level of achievement with performances and with cinematography and music selection all of those all of those boxes are being ticked this
1: was a film that I thought would be an awards frontrunner and in some ways it is but it it hasn't separated
0: itself from the pack like I thought it would I, I'd be surprised to see it grab something like best director because the uh the it seems to be a film where the achievement is mostly in the acting yeah. maybe in cinematography
1: yeah if anything if if it wins anything i would expect to pick up an award in like best adapted screenplay or best actor yeah. and yeah. and uh musical score or something like
0: that yeah it probably so yeah it won't sweep the awards so no that's, um, no uh, it, which it, you know you know i'm a, i'm also totally fine with you know the, yeah yeah so between this and moonlight i i much prefer moonlight i think moonlight's a far stronger film yeah it's interesting though and then I mean, brokeback
1: like, mountain too i think that's a very strong film too
0: yeah i mean i think i would given the choice between uh moonlight and this one i would probably watch rewatch this one Again, first, maybe it's because maybe it's because I more closely relate to <laughs> that kind of uh, the, the what do you relate to, Rob? I well, no, I relate to like the classical experience, uh, the, or the classical history and the uh, um, the, the music side of it, you know. I mean, that's that's those kind of topics were kind of how I grew up, so right. I relate more to like the
1: kind of loneliness that Broken oh, yeah. Mountain and Moonlight has. And Moonlight, you know how it has those parts where it has, like, clothes just, like, flying on a clothesline when it's drying under the hot sun? Yeah. That reminds me of, like, of where I grew up in Taiwan, too, like.
0: Oh, yeah. So that
1: imagery, and it's about minorities, too, so that kind of, I don't know, speaks more to me. I've never had, like, a summer vacation where I've, like, lived in a villa or, like, plucked fruit from the backyard and eaten it. <laughs> well, I mean day. neither neither of i but i mean yeah. it's that to me is just like a more distant world to me, so Right, right. Yeah, but uh oh, the one thing the one film that i think is completely overrated is The Disaster Artist. Oh no. Cuz i think if you don't know what the room is, it's a pretty flat film. Yes,
0: i mean the and i think at the time i saw it and i think i might have i might have said this in my review because i wrote it not long after I saw it for the first time. At the time, I sort of believed that The Room works just fine, whether, you, whether you're whether you familiar with the background or not. But the more I've kind of followed Tommy Wiseau's kind of weird uh, resurgence and how it's suddenly cool to be a fan of The Room and how he's been you know, popping up at awards shows and getting, getting the kind of superstar life that he always dreamed of by proxy through being portrayed by, by James Franco, the more I kind of believe that the disaster artist, the amount you enjoy it is directly connected to how, how much you're following this kind of weird uh, second career that uh, Wizo has had and like all of the weird little side projects. The more you know about like his upcoming movie with Greg Sestero or his uh, some weird TV show or all the strange quotes that he's given to the press, like if you stay on top of all that stuff, you can you'll probably enjoy the Disaster Artist a lot more because you kind of feel like it's a movie that's made for fans of Tommy Wiseau or people who are I don't know perversely interested in Tommy Wiseau. Yeah, um, it's like watching a sequel when you
1: have to watch the first film first.
0: That's <laughs> Yeah, <it's laughs> like, a pretty there's good way certain parts.
1: Yeah, there's certain parts in the in the Disaster Artist that you couldn't quite get as much as if you had already seen the room or know the story behind it. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that was my my one gripe. And uh, I think James Franco's performance was fine.
0: I don't think it was extraordinary. No, but I mean, he he's kind of operating and we might get into this when the uh, the nominations are, are released. And uh, we talk about that on the next episode. But it sounds like he's going to get a nomination for best actor for this one. It's um, be a tough category this year. It's a tough category. But you know, a lot of people have been interviewed now. Uh, In the wake of the, maybe the allegations that some of us always thought were going to come with regard to James Franco, Mm -hmm. you know, he's been accused of um, sexual exploitation of some of his younger cast members, you know, that he's put in some of his, uh, his indie projects, theater, theater shows and stuff like that. So a lot of people who voted for uh, him to be nominated at the Oscars are now wishing they could, they've, they've got on the record and they've said that they wish they could take their votes back, which you can't do incidentally. And so it's possible that he will, he'll get that nomination, but then he won't actually get any votes when they go to choose the winner because uh, he'll kind of be that kind of sticking out like a sore thumb, essentially, you know, with the, with the nomination, but you know what bothers me most about that story? Which one? The, uh, the the allegations against him? No, no. The people
1: pulling their votes for Franco. The same people have probably been voting for Woody Allen and freaking Roman Polanski for years.
0: Yeah, totally. And it's yeah. so
1: hypocritical. Like, yeah, because not pulling away my, or taking away my vote and trashing on James Franco is like in vogue today. When you... Clearly, you've had multiple chances to make the same sort of political stance years ago. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so that really bothers me. When people say that, I'm just like, well, you're so full of fucking shit, man.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, totally. It's. I mean, it, it might sound strong, but yeah, it, I, I'm, I agree with you. It, uh you know, there's, there's a reason why this is all kind of unzipping. Uh, well, that's a bad pun. Uh, bad. <laughs> yeah, that's not good. <laughs> Ignore that. Unraveling. Um, The there's that should
1: stay in the pot because that's funny. (laughs) Um, That's really. But there's
0: yeah there's a reason why it's all kind of coming apart right now uh, because you know there's a lot of pent up there's been a lot of stuff hidden there's a lot of stuff that where people have been complicit and uh, and then it all it all kind of comes apart all at once and yeah people just making
1: half-assed apologies when they don't mean it when they've had numerous chances to make a difference but they don't but they only choose now because it's convenient for them yeah yeah anyway moving on to the shape of water which i think is one of the best original films of the year
0: oh did you catch that one as well
1: i did see it uh sally hawkins is great michael shannon's great as always as michael shannon was kind of thrown off by the fact that doug jones's character in this film is very much like abe sapien and hellboy
0: uh yeah that's true
1: the art design the set design. Um, Sally Hawkins' performance was incredible. I thought it was—it was very much as Guillermo del Toro said, a fairy tale for adults. Yes. It is not really a kids' no. Film. Nah. There's nudity and violence in it. Michael Stolberg's in this film Stolberg is still is in this film as well. He's great. Octavia Spencer is great as well. The music is fantastic. Yes. Um the, it, it's a very sensual fairy tale and it makes you feel all sorts of things because at first it's a very bizarre story, but at
0: the end you start rooting for these characters. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's it is really like a genre bending kind of thing and it's hard to classify. But that's really where Del Toro is at his best. You know, he he's this pantheist. He's he's able to synthesize genres that that might be otherwise like running on completely different tracks. And he, he kind of makes it, makes it feel like you, like they were meant to be together. You know, he, um, and I think a lot of that comes from how knowledgeable he is about all of the influences that are out there to, uh, to put into something Uh, you know, when he, when he goes after a particular author or artist or something, he knows everything about them. You know, he's that he's that he almost applies like a, a classic geeks, uh, obsession with something to topics that haven't really g- uh, gotten a, a geeky subculture to them. And um, yeah, and he, he pours all of that into this movie. Top three film for you? Top three for sure. That and Ladybird, I think, definitely vying for position there. Uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it kind of goes a bit of the similar direction as The Golden Globes, where maybe Del Toro picks up best director for this I one I think he's got it, it in the bag
1: to be honest
0: but it doesn't get best uh best picture no, it won't. so maybe best picture will go elsewhere yeah
1: it's going to be that year where best picture best director and best screenplay go to all three different
0: winners i think yeah i kind of like that though it um you know it spreads spreads the love around a bit
1: yeah but it also tells you like how like no film is really knocked it out of the park or, like, stood out. Does it,
0: though? I mean, isn't it, isn't it enough that we can have a couple of 100%s? No,
1: no, I well, I mean relative to other films. Like, there's no clear-cut frontrunner. Oh,
0: I see. Okay. Like,
1: for me, last year, Moonlight and Manchester by the Sea were just, like, a cut above everyone else. This year, there, it feels like there's, like, 10, 15 films that are kind of in that conversation.
0: Yeah, I, I, yeah, I actually agree with that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: I also saw I, Tonya, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Yes, I saw that as well. Margot Robbie's performance in Everyone's a performance in this were fantastic. Between this and Molly's Game, both movies that really feature strong female characters that went from basically nothing to
0: something. I think, and then, and then, well, nothing to something, then nothing again, right?
1: And then somehow redeem themselves in the end in their own personal sort of viewpoint. Yeah, I think I liked I Tanya a little bit more than Molly's Game. Than Molly's Game, yeah. I think when Molly's Game with. Aaron Sorkin, you know what you're getting. And he did a yes. fantastic job.
0: Yeah. But it I it is very much an Aaron Sorkin movie. Yeah.
1: But I feel like when you're using, like, graphics on the screen and drawing stuff out and explaining things clearly, I feel like you're really taking something away from the flow of the story. So for I, Tanya, even though it was kind of like parts of it were in a mockumentary style... I, I think I liked the progression a bit more. I, I think it felt more more of a natural movie to me than kind of like a documentary, which Molly's Game felt like sometimes.
0: Yeah, yeah. There was a sense w- in which that, like, I, Tanya was down in the dirt, you know, living the, uh, the story mm-hmm. at the same speed as the real-life people, but Molly's Game had a more kind of elevated, kind of uh, observational sort of... Not even observational, but, like, it was kind of looking down from a high place on everything.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think I Tonya, did a better job of showing or telling by showing telling you the story by showing than Molly's game. But I thoroughly enjoyed both films. I just I think I Tonya was a slightly stronger film in my yeah. opinion. What about you?
0: Yeah, it's it's hard because I mean I I do I do really like some of the I I tend to respond well to like to Sorkin's Wordiness and and his yeah me too he's sharp it's fast yeah it it kind of it keeps you interested he works with some really interesting actors and his speeches you know I mean it's easy to get really transfixed by the speeches that his characters delivers whether it's it's you know the the monologues being done by um, Jessica Chastain in the voiceover or Idris Elba's uh, monologue as uh, as the lawyer in one of those deposition scenes is one for the ages so. I'm I'm a little bit torn on it. I don't really know which one I prefer of the two of those. Um, which performance did you prefer, Chastain or Robbie? I think I preferred. Okay, well let, let's say
1: let's say it this way. I preferred. They're both going to be up for the awards, I think. Yes,
0: I preferred Robbie's performance, uh-huh. uh, but. I preferred as a, as a entire movie, Molly's Game.
1: Well, Jessica Chastain had to, like, carry that movie, right?
0: Yes, but, like, I feel like... And she really did. The thing I liked the most about I, Tanya was Robbie's performance. That was the reason I went. Uh, whereas with... And
1: Alice and Janney, too, right? Yeah, yeah,
0: but but definitely Robbie. Um, and then in the case of Molly's Game, I, in that case, it was less about the core performance and more about the whole package. Right.
1: Yeah, I'm with you. I think Robbie's performance was more impressive to me. As much as I love Jessica Chastain, yeah.
0: They're, they're going to, they're going up with, uh, Saoirse Ronan, uh, for, for the award. So, uh, and Sally Hawkins. Yeah. And Sally Hawkins. So that's
1: a tough four headed race. I, do, although I do think Saoirse Ronan and Sally Hawkins probably have the slight edge. Maybe a bit. But between yeah. those two and Francis McDormand, I don't know. It's anyone's, any of those three could win and I'd be okay.
0: McDormand is. At this point, unless the the precursor awards prove me wrong, I feel like McDormand, because she already won for Fargo, that'll that'll hurt hurt her chances a little bit. Even though I know you you prefer it when it's all kind of an even playing playing field, and previous wins don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: Like I don't like how like we should give this person an award or not give it to because of past history. Sure.
0: But uh, yeah, unfortunately, it seems like time bears it out. It's very rare for people to to do repeat performances in their career, or repeat wins in their career. Do you think Meryl Streep will get nominated? I sort of hope she doesn't, because she eats up...
1: She's going to have to push someone out, right? And that someone could be more deserving.
0: Yeah, and I mean, like, I get it. She is one of the best actresses of her generation, if not of all time. But everyone knows it by this point, and every time she gets nominated... She edges out somebody who, you know, case of last year, Amy Adams in Arrival. Um, yes, she she edges someone out who really deserves it, and um, you know, and then you know you get back into the whole conversation of like, you know, do they deserve to win if they haven't won before, or is there you know which. Is it's a, it's a complicated argument, but yeah, I think I I mean personally, I think Meryl Streep has been awarded many many times in her career, and I think she herself feels that way as well. She doesn't want to. Uh, yeah, she makes jokes about it herself. Yeah, exactly. Here's hoping that it it does it does kind of follow that uh, category of like Saoirse Ronan, Margot Robbie, Jessica Chastain, Frances McDormand, and uh, Sally Hawkins. But uh, but yeah, we only have to wait another week or two to find out. The Post, did you see that? No. So, uh, that see. feels
1: like spotlight to me. I feel like because it kind of swept the Golden or um, the National Film uh, Review Board awards. Like, I think Tom Hanks won Best Actor, Meryl Streep won Best Actress, and I think The Post was named Best yeah. Film.
0: But do you think the, the audience there was a little bit more receptive to a journalism award because they themselves are journalists? Of course, yeah. of course. But I feel
1: like this is the year where the voters are going to be split between so many other films. That the post could sneak in.
0: It might, and, yeah.
1: And and win. And it has kind of like a spotlight vibe to it. Yeah. When Spotlight won. So I'm hoping that's not the case. I haven't seen the post, but I can already tell you what to expect from it. That that's the kind of film it
0: is. Yeah, you know, it it is definitely it definitely strikes me as a kind of spotlight style. I mean Spot, spotlight did win Best Picture the year it came out. I by no means am I not excited to see it. I would say, well, yeah, it's, it's for me right now. The five that I really need to see before, uh, before the Oscars will be The Post, Phantom Thread, Darkest Hour, Florida Project, and maybe Wind River. But I'm uh, not, not entirely sure. But there's like wow. there's like five five yeah. there that I that I really need to see. So I need to see Phantom
1: Thread, All the Money in the World, and maybe The Post.
0: We'll see. Are you going to try to see all the money in the world just to prep for the Oscars or just because you like Ridley Scott? Both. I don't think it's going to perform well in the awards. No. And I I like
1: Christopher Plummer. I think replacing him over Kevin Spacey was a smart choice because
0: Christopher Plummer to me gives me
1: more of a Getty vibe than Spacey ever
0: would. Maybe. Yeah. I mean the, and I've, I've heard really good things about his performance considering he had zero time to prepare for it. Yeah. And I, and I'm, I'm generally interested in the in the story. I think it's something that you know it's a story that deserved to be told. It had previously been done in like plenty of documentaries and stuff. But yeah, from for my money, the just the fact that Ridley Scott responded in the way that he did and kind of saved the movie from what could have been like financial doom essentially by keeping Spacey in the final cut. That speaks to Scott's like resourcefulness and his grit and everything more than yeah uh, you know, more than most directors.
1: Oh uh, I need to okay I have one more film to recommend or talk about and that's Coconada's Columbus.
0: Oh okay I haven't oh yes yeah because we um you mentioned this when you saw it at VIF.
1: Yes. So I saw this film at VIF and people were giving it fantastic reviews. I walked in really excited to see what was going on because I think Haley Lou Richardson is a really good actress. It had a very interesting story, it had John Cho in the lead, it had sort of like an interracial relationship um, even though they were just friends in the film that I thought was very interesting. I walked out kind of disappointed because it didn't have, it didn't say much of anything there's a half-baked thesis about having balance in your life. And we all know that. But I feel like it never really goes anywhere. It kind of sticks in one spot and kind of circles around it. But it never really gets to the meat of the issue. And it really depended on, like, the performances of the actors, which are fantastic. But also, Coconata's directing style is more about visual, visual imagery than trying to tell a story visually. I think there's some interesting shots in there, but it doesn't necessarily further the storyline. I think he has shots in there that only because it looks nice. And the other thing, movie I, I last we should touch on last is Star Wars.
0: Well, yeah, I mean we <laughs> we devoted an entire episode to that in the in the previous episode, but yeah, it uh, yeah, obviously but- Star Wars giant behemoth of a movie with uh inspiring a behemoth of a conversation. As well, I feel like we're still talking about yes, like not not only are the complainants and the, and the whiners still going on about it, but you know we're still talking about the complainants and the whiners. Yeah, even it was even news when uh, they finally released like a high res <laughs> yes. version of the Luke Skywalker brushing the dirt off his shoulder gif. You know, people were, people were retweeting the hell out of that. I'm like, you know, I mean, it's not enough for Star Wars to conquer every single uh, aspect of our democracy, but uh, we <laughs> he's taking over all the gifts as well. We've had a really good year shockingly shockingly uh, well, and so are you, are you going on the record and saying that we had a good year because i don't think i've ever heard you say that in like four years of movie watching <laughs>
1: yes yes okay i am going on record as saying this is a good year this has been a re-
0: 2017 is a good year all right yeah this has been a really good year yeah can't say that about other years. Well, yeah, you know, I I beg to differ. You know, I I always find some some optimism in the
1: <laughs> yeah. In every year, there's always like three or four really outstanding films. This year, I felt like there were at least ten films that were really worth watching. Yeah,
0: and then, and that's us just talking. Uh, you know, before we've even seen some of the the really big ones on our list, like Phantom Thread or The Post, or um, you know, there's there's still a few. Left to see, so I get the sequel fatigue and the blockbuster fatigue.
1: We've we're like kind of like an upswing in terms of like the number of quality films per year. Sometimes there's years that like are fantastic, and then they go through a little lull, and then it picks up again. I think we're at the part where like everything's gonna pick
0: up again. Yeah, and well, I have to say too that you know a few people have pointed out that with the death of the Weinstein Company, you know it's it's apparently being sold now for like basically pennies we're losing a major producer of uh, of independent cinema you know one of the holdouts against the sequel driven hollywood machine but you know there's a lot of companies stepping up to fill that void you know you've got annapurna, annapurna a24 um stx all of them are are making some pretty big uh, gambles with uh with pretty you know risque stuff so um Whereas the Weinstein Company definitely had was a bit of a titan for a while in in promoting uh, movies that wouldn't otherwise get a a wide release, you know, I, there's still there's still a way to cure the the sequel fatigue if you uh, if you want to seek it out. Yeah,
1: exactly. All right, I think that does it. Yeah. <laughs> uh,
0: so yeah, thanks for listening to this uh, mammoth sized retrospective of all the movies of 2017 we only touched on maybe maybe uh 30 or 35 of the uh, the top ones but obviously there was many many more uh, on top of that so uh, be sure to let us know uh which ones we missed which ones uh, you'd like to hear us talk about and stay tuned for our continuing coverage of the awards season In the next episode we'll definitely be talking about revelations of the the oscar nominations uh what to make out of that and we'll make our picks yes we will we will officially go on record i am more nervous about that than jason is but <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's because i don't care. I know <laughs> i'm just gonna go for the ones that i think i like
0: yes so we'll get into all of that in the next episode but until then from toronto my name is robert snow
1: and from vancouver i'm jason chen thanks for listening Please check out kinetoscope.ca for our latest written reviews and follow us on Twitter. We'll talk to you next time.